So we are embarking on this journey together, and today what I aim to do is preach through the entire book of Matthew in one sitting. And what I promise you is we won't be here till six o'clock tonight. But uh, I did highlight, I wanted Laura to read this particular section because I, I highlights a theme in the book of Matthew that we are, we would, you are going to see over and over again. Um, each week in NT60, what I'm going to do is try to preach as best I can ahead of where we're reading. So today I'll preach on Matthew, and then you'll dive in as you are reading with us in NT60 and the book of Matthew. And hopefully you'll see this theme that is highlighted in what Laura read today, the kingship of Jesus, that Jesus is king. This NT60 journey together, I'm very excited about it. I'm excited for the number of you who have uh, already signed up for texts. And uh, Richard, can you put that number up there if, if you haven't signed up? And when you leave here and get a cell phone signal again, uh, you can text uh, th- that number, AM or PM, to that number and sign up for a reminder in the morning or a reminder in the evening. If you don't text, uh, there's, a, there's a printed out plan there in your bulletin. But I also want to remind you that... Um, you don't have to do NT60 to be part of Waukee Community Church, okay? So I know some of you, for whatever reason, just can't do this right now. It's just, uh, it, you know, it's just not in your plate or not on your ability, and you can't do that, and that's okay. Still come on Sundays. You're going to get a lot out of the preaching of the Word of God as we as we look in big chunks about what the New Testament is about. Uh, and but I would highly encourage you because I think that you will be richly blessed if you take the challenge. And, uh, you know, some of you are like me, you start a reading plan and you fall behind. It's okay, get caught up, or if you get so far behind, just skip ahead to where we're at. It's okay, just hang in there with us, and I think you'll be richly blessed as you read through the New Testament with us together. And so we're talking about today, about this concept of the kingship of Jesus, And if you're up for this challenge and you start reading through the book of Matthew, you're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has in mind to highlight that Jesus is king. Now it's true, uh, we don't really in America really understand the concept of king. It's kind of hard for us to to get our minds around. We think of a crown, you know, or a a tiara maybe, or a Burger King crown, which is what I really wanted to bring today, but I couldn't get to Burger King fast enough. And so, uh, uh, but you know, this idea, uh, it's sort of a dumbed down, watered down uh, idea, this concept of king. We don't get it. The best we can come up with is to relate to uh, those across the pond there in England who have a, a constitutional monarchy or whatnot, and, and they have sort of a figurehead that's really the queen. That's the, the closest really we can co- comprehend, and it's sometimes it's hard for us to understand when we say Jesus is king what the Jews meant when they said Jesus is king, or when they talked about a king at all. For the Jews, the king was an identity for them. The king for the Jews in Jesus' day was an identity and a source of hope. To to understand what Matthew meant by the kingship of Jesus, we have to understand some cultural context. Of course, we know Jesus was born right around the turn of that first millennium, uh, right around the year zero. It's easy to remember um, that when Jesus was born. And the Jews in the first century had been going, they didn't just appear in a vacuum. The Jews in the first century had been in a culture and they had been, uh, they were living in the world around them and they had developed over time because of their context a certain ideology, a certain thoughts about the king. 
You'll remember um, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, you might remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were, were punished and sent into captivity into Babylon. And they were taken for 70 years in Babylon, while Babylon was, of course, the world power at the time. And Babylon conquered them and de- killed many Jews and deported a remnant off to Babylon. And while during those seven years in Babylon, the world scene changed and the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and the Persians rose. And of course, you remember in Daniel, that time, um, Daniel happened during that time in, in the exile. And once the Persian king arose, eventually the Jews went back to Jerusalem. There was a rebuilding of the temple and of the walls, and, and they started to begin to have a, an identity. And that's kind of where we're left at at the close of the Old Testament, is that we're left with the Jews who are back in the land. They have a, a temple that's just a shadow of the former temple. Um, and they, have, they are still existing as a nation under another rule, the rule of another. Now, what's fascinating is between the close of the Old Testament and open up in the New, a couple of things happen in the world scene that are really important to understanding the Gospel of Matthew. First of all, we need to remember that the Greeks con- conquered the Persians, and, and you might know the name Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came and conquered the world. And Alexander the Great had some sons, and they split up his kingdom. And these sons were not friends of the Jews, many of them. In fact, one of them actually took a pig, and he slaughtered it on the altar of the temple. In other words, just to say, I'm going to do whatever I can to be offensive to you. Um, the, Jews were, the, the Greeks were eventually conquered by the Romans, and the Romans ruled the Jews with an iron fist. The Romans understood that to keep an empire that, that, that was that big, they had to have a mighty military that could squash any rebellion. And over the centuries before Jesus was born, the Jews at many times tried to rebel against this Roman rule, and, and every time they were squashed. And this is the, 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 the world in which, to which Jesus is born. And when Jesus is doing ministry, when he's walking around, there are Roman soldiers on the street to remind the Jews to stay in line. Because while you might have a king, King Herod, who's more of a figurehead than anything, real power belongs to Rome and don't mess with Rome. And so what's really fascinating is what happened for the Jews is this began to create in the Jewish people a longing for a real independence, for a real king, for a real identity of their own. They were fed up with Roman rule. The Jews were all talking about a Messiah who would save them. They wanted liberation. They wanted the national identity. And they wanted to be self-governing. But they had to be careful because the Jews in Jesus' day knew that if they did got out of line, the Romans would just squash them. So they talked about one, and I think they talked about him secretly, about one who would come and liberate them and deal with Rome. And it's in this context that the Gospel of Matthew is written. Now, we have to ask, who was, who was Matthew? Who was the guy who wrote this book of Matthew? Well, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. But before he was a disciple of Jesus, he was a tax collector, really a, a patsy for the Romans. Um, what, one of the things that the Romans did was they appointed a lot of Jewish people to be tax collectors. So what a Jewish tax collector would do is he would walk into a town and he would walk up to a family and say, you owe your tax, pay up. But the tax collector was allowed some leniency in what he asked for. 
Often he could ask for more than he had to pay for Rome. This is how a tax collector got his fees. He could set the fee schedule. He could pocket the difference between what he collected and what he actually had to send to Rome. And this made Jews hate tax collectors. They hated them because they were like turncoats. They were traitors. They were serving the Romans. This was Matthew. Now, personally, I think at some point, I don't know this, but I think at some point Matthew got sick of it. I think he got sick of being hated. I think he got sick of serving the Romans. I just think he got, grew tired of it, and he, in himself, created a personal, there was a personal longing for a real Jewish king. And what Matthew discovered was that Jesus was different than all the other fake kings, the rebels that had come before him. Because Matthew encountered Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Listen to what Matthew says as he's writing about himself in Matthew chapter 9. In verse 9 he says, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to Matthew, follow me. Now, first of all, do you see how scandalous that was? Just that statement right there. Knowing who Matthew was and he was a tax collector. Knowing that Jesus, a respected Jewish rabbi, would say oh, I want a, an evil tax collector to follow me. Someone who's hated by his, his peers. He said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner, where? At Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. What Matthew found in Jesus was somebody who was completely different. Jesus touched Matthew's life. Jesus was willing to rub shoulders with a tax collector and a sinner and say, you too can follow me. And what Matthew discovers is that Jesus was the rightful promised king of the Jews. But Jesus had a kingdom that was not like the kingdom that anyone expected. It's really interesting that Matthew talks about the concept of the son of David. As you read through Matthew, one of the things you're going to discover is that Matthew says the phrase, Son of David, a lot. Now, to understand what, why Matthew would say, Son of David, we need to see this, that God made a promise to the, to the Israel. God made a promise to King David 900 years previous. And according to the Old Testament, the throne of the king had to be of a certain line. In, in, uh, in uh, 2 Samuel 7, God promised this to King David, who was like the quintessential Jewish king. And he said to David, David, uh, I promise you that there will always be a descendant of yours on the throne of Israel. If there's a king, he'll be a descendant of yours. So the king that the Jews hoped for had to be in the line of David. These first century Jews, they looked for this genealogical support when everyone someone would say they're king. If someone would go up and say, I am the next king of Israel, they would say, oh yeah, show us your family line. Let's see it. Matthew does this in Matthew chapter 1. Look at the very first thing he says. Matthew sets the tone about the kingship of Jesus in the very first verse of Matthew. Matthew 1.1, he says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. And then he goes back, he was the son of Abraham first. And, and Matthew does a whole biblical support. A lot of times we get into Matthew and we go, such and such was the son of such and such, and we roll our eyes. And we say, ah. Oh. But what Matthew does is, is he chops up 
the, the genealogy line of Jesus into neat sections of 14. And that's because what he wanted people to do was he, it was important enough to Matthew, he wanted people to be able to memorize the line of Jesus because Jesus is king. So Matthew is going to show how Jesus is a Jewish, as a good Jewish person, was descended from Abraham, as all Jews were, and how he followed through, and he, he was through the line of David. And the line continued through the exile all the way to the present day. It's important. Jesus is king, and he has to prove it that he's the son of David. Matthew wants the un- reader to understand that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, but not just of Israel, but of the whole world. He's the son of David. What's so fascinating as we, as we read through the book of Matthew is what we're going to see is Jesus runs into a lot of conflict. You know, Jesus was a guy who stirred up a lot of controversy of his day. Jesus still stirs up in controversy. Nothing has changed. But Jesus stirred up a lot of controversy of his day. And the people who were looking for the king, the religious leaders, were the last ones to recognize Jesus or not at all. But look who Matthew identifies as people who recognize the kingship of Jesus. This is so fascinating. The first thing we have, the first person, in, as we're looking through Matthew, it, it strikes me, the first person, people that recognize the kingship of Jesus, when, when, when those who studied the Bible, when those who studied the Old Testament should have seen him and didn't, the first people that saw him were the Magi from the East. Remember Matthew chapter 2? Matthew's the only one that gives us this account, this, this portion of the birth of, Je- the, of the Christmas story. And Matthew records that after the uh, angel had come to Joseph and, and told him about Jesus, that later on, the Magi came from the east. We typically call them the wise men. Uh, the Magi were some sort of royal official, some sort of royal servant. They were, and they were men from the east. Where were they from? Were they from Israel? No, they weren't Jewish. In other words, Matthew is telling us from the get-go, Jesus is king, but those who should have recognized him as king didn't. It took royal officials from a far-off place to come and pay honor and worship the kingship of Jesus. As we flip through Matthew, we continue. Look who else recognizes Jesus as king. I love Matthew chapter 9 because in Matthew chapter 9, we we read two blind men who see the kingship of Jesus. Could there be a bigger irony? I mean, like, I think Matthew's probably chuckling as he's writing this letter. He says, look at these. Two blind guys can see Jesus for who he is. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of of David. And based on their faith in Jesus, they're healed. Matthew chapter 12, we learn that not the, the Pharisees weren't the ones that recognized the kingship of Jesus. Again, in great irony, all the people recognized it. All the common people who weren't supposed to be scholars and know the Old Testament. They're just people. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who could neither talk nor see. And in verse 23, the text says, all the people were astonished. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's by the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. Isn't that interesting? Those who shouldn't be able to see can see the kingship of Jesus. And those who should be able to don't. 
In Matthew chapter 15, we run into this pagan mother. The, the, the text says she's a Canaanite woman. You remember back in the day of Joshua, the Canaanites were the people that were supposed to be driven out of the land as the, as the Jews took the land, as the Israelites took the land uh, that God had promised them. And the Canaanites were seen as pagans. And the Canaanites were terrible people. This was a descendant of a Canaanite. Even a pagan mother can see the kingship of Jesus. Her daughter had suffered terribly, but she calls out in chapter 15, Son of David. And the disciples are completely annoyed by this, by the way. Like, get this woman, Gentile, pagan, worthless person out of here. But Jesus says she sees my kingship. Matthew lets us know that. And through her faith in Jesus, this woman's daughter is healed. See, Matthew wants us to learn something about the kingship of Jesus. He wants us to learn that Jesus was a different kind of king, and Jesus had a different kind of kingdom, and this is why those who should have seen Jesus didn't see him. They completely, those who should have known it, completely missed the kingship of Jesus. Is it any different today? I mean, all kinds of people miss the kingship of Jesus. They miss it on Jesus. There's so much study of Jesus today, and so many people try to debunk the myth of the Gospels or the myth of Jesus. Some try to explain Jesus away. Some try to pass him off as a good man. Everyone tries to get Jesus to support their particular issue. It always cracks me up when politicians quote Jesus. Like, you can just tell right away that some speechwriter put that in there for them. Oftentimes, they have no idea what they're talking about. Everybody wants to get Jesus to support their issue. But few want to recognize for Jesus is who he really is. The son of David. The rightful king of their life. Begs the question. When we read Matthew. All the way through. As you're reading through Matthew. You should ask the question. Have I missed it on Jesus? Is Jesus my king? Or am I the master of my own life? You see acknowledging Jesus as king means giving up self-rule. And that is an anti-American thought, isn't it? Giving up self-rule. It just doesn't work in our culture. We think, no, no, I'm all about self-determination and I want independence and I want to do my thing and I want to have it my way and I want to be able to say. It's why so many people long for retirement when they can tell their boss, I don't have to listen to you anymore. I can rule my own life. Bowing to a king means surrender. You know, one of the beauties of, about this idea of, of reading through the New Testament in 60 days is you'll spend the first 24 days with your king. If you read through this, you'll spend the first 24 days with Jesus as you read straight through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You're going to read things about Jesus and you're going to see it more than one time because more than one of the authors talk about this thing that happened with Jesus. It's beautiful. It's opportunity as you read Matthew to spend this time with Jesus, to say, is Jesus really my king? Now Matthew wants to remind us that Jesus is our king, and he's the rightful king. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, he's the king. Matthew wants to remind us that Jesus is the king of a different kind of kingdom. It's really interesting. Well, Matthew is the, really the only one that does this, I think, but he, whenever he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, which he uses 32 times in the book of Matthew. 
He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times. And, but in the original language, is he, he actually, the word heaven there is plural. So it's as if Matthew's really saying the kingdom of the heavenlies. In particular, I think he does this because he wants to draw our attention to the different nature of the kingdom. You see, Jesus' kingdom is different than anything that people really could have imagined. He was not assuming the earthly throne. Jesus was not here to knock off Caesar or to knock off Herod and have someone put a a robe and a crown on his head so that he could be the decision maker, the one on the top. Jesus was a kingdom of a different realm. But Jesus says this phrase, Matthew tells it to us over and over. Jesus continues to say this phrase, the kingdom is near or the kingdom is at hand. John the Baptist starts it right away in Matthew. John the Baptist looks ahead and he tells people who come out to see him, repent for the kingdom is near. And Jesus in Matthew just picks up this phrase, the kingdom is at hand. The the fascinating thing about the kingdom, the king's kingdom in Matthew, is that this kingdom is different than what we would expect. Uh, I oftentimes have heard people refer to Jesus' kingdom as a kingdom upside down. Like Jesus takes our concept of rule and authority and power and he turns it upside down. He turns it on its head. That's what Jesus does. The kingdom of God is a kingdom upside down in Matthew. And that's what we learn. We see it right away in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, this famous passage that begins where Jesus, there in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, the kingdom belongs to those you wouldn't expect. Blessed are the, he talks about like the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the hungry, the pure, the persecuted, etc., etc. Blessed are they. In other words, the kingdom belongs to these people. It's a kingdom upside down. It's not what you'd expect. Jesus says, the kingdom belongs to Little children, remember? Let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, uh, it's hard. The kingdom of God's hard for the wealthy. It's harder for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle. Jesus is using hyperbole here to remind us that in most kingdoms, those who are wealthy tend to have more power. But in the kingdom of God, it's upside down. In the kingdom, the first or last, and the last or first, Jesus says, If anyone wants to be great, he must be servant of all. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells us a parable that highlights this kingdom upside down really well. Um, We see in Matthew chapter 20 that there's a parable of the the owner and the vineyard workers. And the owner goes out and he says, listen, uh, I want to hire some workers for the day. So he goes to the town square or the town meeting place where people hung out waiting for someone to come hire them. And Jesus, and, and Jesus tells us in this parable that the owner goes and, and he hires people early in the morning and he puts them to work. And then around noon, he goes back out and he, he finds more people and he, he says, why aren't you working? And they say, well, no one's hired us yet. And go, well, come on, let's go to work. And he puts them to work. About, and then late in the afternoon, right before quitting time, he goes again. And he goes out and he says, why aren't you working? Well, no one's hired us. Well, come on, let's go work. So the end of the day comes, and as was tradition in in the time, uh, the owner paid the worker right at the end of the day. And so quitting time, the bell rings, they line up, and Jesus Jesus tells us he starts with the people that only worked like an hour or so. And he gives them the full amount. And then he gets to the people that sort of came around noon, and 
He gives them the full amount. So the, the people who start at 8 o'clock are really excited. They're like, well, he's going to pay me way more than he ever agreed to because look at those people who work you know, half or less. They got paid full. And then Jesus gives them the same amount. And they're ticked off. And the owner, Jesus tells us the owner in this parable. Yeah, and he tells them, the owner then says, hey, listen, wasn't it my money to do with as I pleased? The owner says, the first, Jesus says, as such, the first will be last and the last will be first. What Jesus is doing is he's flipping the kingdom upside down. He's reminding us, I'm in a, a king of a kingdom that works differently than you and I typically understand. And what, what really is important in the kingdom of heaven is faith. Faith is this key component of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's uh, sort of so counterintuitive to us. Uh, we think of faith as, you know, like the Wizard of Oz, click your heels three times. If you, or, you know, if you just believe in magic, magic will happen. Uh, we kind of think of faith in terms of believing in Santa Claus or something like that. But in faith in the Bible, it's always about the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus. It's, we're saying, Jesus, you are a king who is completely dependable. This is the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like for a kingdom upside down. All the way as you read through the book of Matthew, you're going to see this concept. Jesus, son of David. Jesus, king. And you need to be asking yourself, Jesus, are you the king of my life? We get to the end of Matthew in Matthew chapter 28, and some pretty neat stuff happens. Um, Jesus, at, by this point, had died. The disciples were in hiding. Some, some women go to anoint his body and they encounter the risen Christ. Now, remember the first people to recognize the kingship of Jesus that I talked about from Matthew 2, the Magi from the east? Do you remember what I, what I said that they did? It says they worshipped him. Now, look at this. Verse 9. Well, verse 6. So the women hurried away from the tomb afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. The proper response to the kingship of Jesus is worship. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is king of Israel. He's the king of the world. He's the king of heaven. Is he the king of your life? So we pull all this concepts of, from the kingdom, from the kingship of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, as Matthew sets this out for us. And when we bring this all together, a couple thoughts come to mind. First of all, you might be sitting there this morning and, and reading this and reading along with in some of the samples from these passages throughout the book of Matthew. And you might say, Jesus... Dave, Dave, you might be saying, I get this. Jesus is king, and that's what Matthew wants us to know. But then you might stop and go, I don't see it. I mean, you might look around you and go, I, I don't see it. You say Jesus is king, but, you know, like, my life didn't go the way I wanted it to. Like, I had a plan for my life, and it didn't turn out the way I wanted to. Where's God? You say he's in control. He's the king. Where is he? 
Or you might look at the world around you and you might say, I don't see Jesus as king because ISIS is beheading people and, and Russia is going crazy and every time I turn on the news, there's more bombs and, and terrible things happening. And, and you might say, you know, Israel seems to be out of control and Somalia has warlords again and this whole thing. And you're like, the world is spinning out of control and you say, Jesus is king. And as I was thinking about that, I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 2. The psalmist says, why do the nations rage? He says, they take their stand against the Holy One, the Anointed One. And then he continues and he says, the one enthroned laughs. This world might seem like it's spinning out of control. You might look, but do you know there's a great comfort in the fact that Jesus is King? Because even though you don't see it, He is. His sovereign hand. You see, the resurrection of Jesus did change everything. Sin and death were defeated. My friend Aaron Savage, uh, uh, Thursday morning, said it this way. I'm quoting you, Aaron, so there you go. He says, The disciples went around joyfully after the resurrection because they knew God was taking back His world and they were a part of that project. Rome was still strong. Death and persecution were still at hand. But Jesus was king, and it brought them great joy. You might be saying, it doesn't seem like Jesus is king, but I assure you today, he is. Now, secondly, we recognize that Jesus, in the kingship of Jesus, that we are citizens of another kingdom. And that's an important reminder as we look through Matthew. It's hard to remember sometimes that we have dual citizenship. And one always takes the lead. It's true today that you are probably a citizen of the United States or, or Canada. We have a few Canadians here. Uh, or somewhere else that I don't know about. You are a citizen of some country in this world. But you are a citizen of heaven. That's what the Apostle Paul reminds us. That means we take our directives first and foremost from Christ. The, the Apostle said in the book of Acts, we must obey God rather than men. And so it's true. We're citizens of another kingdom. And the third thing as we pull it all together is that we're ambassadors and that means we have the authority of jesus matthew 28 at the end look at this verse 18 then jesus came this is after the resurrection jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples in Christ, we're ambassadors of the king. As ambassadors carry the authority of the country he represents, so we have Jesus' authority, and this is so empowering. You see, it's easy to be fearful, but you don't have to be. You have the authority of the king. We can take the message of this upside-down kingdom to the world around us, and we can be scared, but we don't have to be, because we have the authority of Jesus. I was talking to someone this week, uh, who was facing the end of her life. And she, I visited her in the hospital, and, and as I was sitting there with her, I was trying to explain the gospel message. And her whole family is sitting around, and I thought, somebody in this family is not going to like this message, and they're going to come unglued on me. But in that remote moment, I was reminded of the kingship of Jesus, that I go with his authority. Uh, with great joy, I could explain the death of Jesus. 
We could explain the importance of understanding and repenting of our own sin, of embracing through faith Jesus, what He did on our behalf. It's what we do when we take communion, when we remember that Jesus' body was bruised for us and that, that His blood was poured out to cover our sin. And, and He says, when, in understanding this through faith, we become children of this kind of King who defeated death. We have courage. So it's easy to be fearful, but we have the authority of the King. So as we close, I would want to just point out two more things to you from the the book of Matthew. As you're reading through this, I want want to point these out because I think they're really important. The first thing is, is sort of an observation from absence. It's very interesting that Matthew closes with the Great Commission. Um. Matthew, some of the other Gospels close with the ascension of Jesus back up into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. But Matthew chooses to close with the Great Commission. It's almost as Matthew has been working so hard to remind us of the reality of the kingship of Jesus that it doesn't even matter that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now. The kingship of Jesus is real, he's saying. It's like, go in this authority. This is exciting. The second observation is really encouraging. Matthew does this cool thing in his book. And, you know, I I always wonder how long it took him to think through this. But uh, as he was moved along by the Holy Spirit to write these words, uh, one of the things that Matthew records is uh, what the angel said to Joseph. But when Mary was pregnant and Joseph was probably freaked out and, and, and he was told that it's okay, this is, child of God. and uh, He said, when he's born, do you remember what, he said, you'll call him, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we start the book thinking about the fact that God would come to us in a man, in Jesus. Then look how we end the book. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We start with Emmanuel, we end with Emmanuel. Because this very king is my king. This very king is personal and he is with us and we carry his authority and no matter what we go through, no matter what happens, Jesus is there. Our God is there. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, today I pray that you would, we would take great comfort and courage in the kingship of Jesus. I pray that, that we would be challenged personally to willingly submit to the directives of our King. God, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Christ, who says, I, I don't know this Jesus. If there's anyone here today who's never repented and through faith been forgiven in Christ, Lord, I pray that today would be that moment and that the kingship of Jesus would be real and powerful. God, as a church, as we, as some of us and many of us take this challenge to read through the New Testament together, Lord, as a church, as we do this, I pray this week through the book of Matthew that you would remind us of the other present kingship 
of Jesus, that he is the promised king and he's the king of our lives. And I ask this all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.